welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. I had my hands being held just above my head like that and now I was squirming and I was I was going mad and I was saying, you know, you can't do that, you can't do that, I'm underage, you're not a man, you're, you're not allowed. And in fairness, if I had known as much as I knew now about really what is and isn't appropriate, and not just appropriate but legal, it really wasn't acceptable the way that that was done. This week, we're speaking to Oscar, a 22-year-old primary school teacher. Oscar grew up in a working class area and had a number of encounters with Gardaí when he was a teenager. A lot of this episode is about thinking about children and how they are treated by Gardaí and particularly why they should be treated differently. I think that, first of all, we don't hear enough from young people about their experiences of being policed and and of their interaction with Angarthi Shikana. Professor Ursula Kilkelly is the head of the College of Business and Law in UCC and really is Ireland's foremost authority on juvenile justice. Research that we've done in particular in relation to the Guard Diversion Programme would indicate that, that those Gardaí who are specially trained can have very empathetic, very positive relationship with young people. And that often is uh, very constructive for, for young people themselves and in keeping them out of trouble um, and, and does bear fruit also in the nature of the relationship that the young people have with the Gardaí. I think that there are undoubtedly cases where that doesn't play out quite so well, where we have individual young people and uh, young people in particular areas where the relationship is poor generally and and where young people's vulnerability uh, in particular, I suppose, is not fully understood by those who don't have the necessary training and expertise and empathy for young people. So it varies. It's a very varied picture. Um, But in, in the main, I would say how important it is that we hear directly from young people about their experiences of interacting with the Gardaí and that we both both in, in policy terms and generally as a public need to learn more about those experiences, particularly from, from a young person's perspective. I am a teacher. I am a teacher in Bray in County Wicklow and I teach fifth class at the moment. I've been teaching for two years now, so I finished college two years ago. Um, I usually teach the senior classes in school. I'm in a Desh one school, so it's a school in quite a socioeconomically disadvantaged area. Same area I grew up in myself, so working class kind of background. And um, just on today to talk kind of about my own experiences with with the Gardaí growing up as a working class young man and my experiences with, you know, working class children and their experiences with the Gardaí in our own area kind of thing. Can I ask you actually why you went into teaching? I wasn't sure when I was leaving school if I wanted to go into teaching or if I wanted to go into kind of youth and community work. I don't know. I think it's a lot of things. I I didn't have the happiest kind of family life growing up and I kind of wanted to just be able to make a big impact on other young people's lives. I did go before I started teaching. I went and I started to do a social work course and then I decided halfway through that I really did want to be a teacher. I loved teaching. I, you know, I had I had the facility to go on to college and do teaching. So I reapplied to the CAO the next year and went on to become a teacher then. Well, that's amazing. And, you know, as you say, to have that background and to be engaging with kids with a similar background. Yeah. Yeah, it must be really rewarding. Yeah, you understand the kind of life because, you know, obviously so many teachers there, it is, it is quite a middle class profession and not that not that they can't understand the life of working class people but it's just very alien in the sense that I wouldn't understand the life of someone maybe that lives in a different country or from a different culture so it's I think it is important you know I do understand the kids lives and see myself and the kids kind of thing you know. Prior to the incidents in question Oscar didn't have a high level of trust or confidence in the Gardaí. There wasn't a great attitude I guess towards the guards especially as a young lad. Now, I don't know if that was necessarily 
just me or the people around me. I think it was kind of most of us. But uh, I didn't particularly like the guards. I, I hadn't heard great stories about other people's experiences with the guards. The guards tended not to be very nice to young people, particularly young lads. I always thought that the guards were just people that went to be guards because they wanted to be kind of authoritarian and have power over other people. So no, it wasn't the greatest. I didn't have the greatest hopes for the Gardaí. When he was 15, Oscar had a very serious incident with Gardaí, which resulted in his detention. I want to be clear at the outset that under Irish law, you are a child until you are 18. I think we get caught up in images of teenage boys, but they are children. For a long time, the criminal law has has accepted that children need to be treated differently. That's evolved and our understanding of that has evolved over time. But in, in short, it's because of a recognition that for lots of reasons, children are developing and, and maturing emotionally, behaviourally, physiologically. And we know that as a result of this, that their judgment is sometimes not as well developed, as not as sophisticated. For example, they think more about the short term than the long term consequences of what they're doing. And, and as a result of that, really, they shouldn't have to bear the full force of the criminal law uh, so it really is taking account of their continuing development and maturing and, and also to give them the best life chances so we don't bring the full force of the criminal law on them at a time where they're not uh, as responsible, if you like, as, as adults. And I think the circumstances and the behaviour that young people demonstrate needs to be understood in its context. And in particular, I, I would say one key issue is that all behaviour is communication. And so a need to empathise and understand and un- understand where a young person is coming from, how they might perceive what's happening compared to what we as an adult and an individual of Avangadi Shikana might perceive, might be very different. We've heard this idea come up before, how layers of different factors from class to race and now age will affect the interaction between those policed and those policing. It was at a kind of underage event near enough to where I live and we'd gone a group of us beforehand and one of my mates, he just had too much to drink and he was in the bathroom getting sick and there was myself and another one of my friends in with him. There was a bang on the cubicle door so I went and opened it and I just said, I'll be two minutes. And it was the um, it was just the, the security guard, one of the bouncers, and he obviously had thought it was me getting sick, so he'd he'd kind of grabbed me and brought me outside, and I'd explained anyways. And my friend had come out, my friend who was getting sick, and he'd come out and explained the situation, and the, the bouncer said, you know, you're you're not getting back in tonight, kind of thing, and that was that. So I was sorry. I, had you been drinking? No, we, I, in fairness, I, I did have drink to bring with us, but the guards, there's a, a kind of long walk down to the venue and the guards were at the gate, so we had all of our drink taken off us and poured out in front of us. So, no, I actually wasn't drinking this time. But I was I was kind of moping around the outside of the, the venue and um, there was a, a female guard there and she, she had the guard van. There was always guards at the thing and... Um, She'd come over to me and she was actually lovely. She just asked what happened and I explained. And she had said to me, you know, you've two choices. You can't be staying around here. You've two options. You can either walk home or we'll drop you home. And it was said to me as such, like it, it was just said nice and calm. And that was my two options. And I'd said, sure, there was, there was no way I could walk home. You know, I was supposed to be getting the lift home and staying in my friend's house that night. So I, I, I didn't want to be waiting around for hours for them to come by and I couldn't be waiting around there. So I said, listen, I'll, I'll take the lift if it's there. Like, And um, she was lovely. She said, that's grand, just hop in the back there um, and I'll, we'll, we'll bring you back in two minutes. Sure, we have nothing to be doing here anyways. And all very nice and friendly. So it was the guard of van and in the van there's the kind of cage door and then there's the the main door. So they just she just closed the cage door and I could see outside always grand, I was on my phone. And um, another female guard had come around and she'd said, oh, what's going on here? And the first female guard that I'd spoken to had said, um, he was getting sick all over the place, falling over, he's been cheeky with me here. So we're, we're bringing him back to the station. 
And now obviously this was news to me because she like she genuinely had been really, really lovely to me up until then and listened to everything and I was telling her the whole thing and she she just sat there or stood there and listened. I kind of kicked up and I said, no, I, I want to get out. I'll get my own way home. I'll walk down to the bus or whatever. I'll find a way. I'll get a taxi. And she was kind of having none of it, the two of them. And um, it was it wasn't just the fact that she'd kind of lied to me at that point, but it was it was really nasty the way they were going on. Like I was I was 15. I hadn't been I'd never even so much as spoken to a guard really before. And now I was being arrested and the two of them were kind of when they were talking to each other outside and I could see them and hear them, they were they were kind of laughing and giggling and, you know, just nasty kind of schoolyard behaviour. And um, I I was saying, you know, I want to get out, I want to leave, blah, blah, blah. And I took out my phone now and I started recording. And that's when kind of things switched quickly. Um, there was no laughing with them anymore. It was, you know, give me that phone now. You can't have a phone. You're under arrest. You're being brought back to the station. Um, and their tone really changed. So I had my phone out and she opened the cage door and she'd said, give me that phone. I said, no, I'm not giving you the phone. And I had my phone out recording like this, just on my chest. The second one was behind her saying, just get the phone off him, get the phone off him. So I'd put the phone down, down my jocks, like down my trousers. And um, she really didn't like that. And I said, it's still on record so they can hear everything you're saying kind of thing. And I, you know, I looking back, I obviously, I didn't react in the best way, but when you're 15 and scared kind of thing it's you know I don't know if there is a specific way to react. Dr TJ McIntyre Associate Professor of Law at the Sutherland School of Law in UCD talk to me about whether you're permitted to record the Gardaí when they are on duty. The basic rule is yes you can record Gardaí carrying out their duties and this issue came up in 2018 when the then Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan indicated that he would be in favour of a ban on filming of police carrying out their duties and following a storm of public criticism, was forced to retreat from that position. And that reflected the general principle that there isn't any general legal prohibition on filming Gardaí. Now, that said, there can be some situations where filming might um, amount to um, interrupting them in the course of carrying out their duties, in which case you might be um, prevented from doing it. There might be some situations in which what you do with the film might be a breach of their data protection rights. For example, if you were to film them and then put information about guards along with the video online and uh, invite people to harass them. But in general, the answer is no, there is no prohibition on film and guardy carrying out their duties. I didn't think anyone would believe me saying, you know, if someone or when a parent or whatever, if someone asked me about it the next day, and someone's like, if I was explaining it, I just didn't think anyone would believe that I'd, I was helping my friend and then I'd been kicked out and then a guard offered me a lift home, but then she, I actually just got arrested. And, you know, that's not coming from a 15 year old. That's not something you'd believe. It's so I, I genuinely did. I wasn't trying to be, you know, it wasn't going to be something I'd posted on Facebook or anything like that. It was genuinely the fact that. I knew if I had told the story to someone else or when I explained myself to someone, they, they wouldn't believe the story because it, it does sound mad. But that's, that's what was going on, you know. To some extent, this looks like something new. It looks like something that's only an issue since everybody has mobile phones in their pockets with video recording capabilities. But of course, it really goes back to 1991 when Rodney King was pulled out of his car by the Los Angeles Police Department and brutally beaten. And that was captured on video and ultimately led to the LA riots of 1992 after the um, police who were involved in that beating were, it was perceived, seen as getting away lightly um, when they escaped conviction at the time. So the idea that um, individuals are much more likely to have cameras, that the technology is now democratised, that anybody can use it, um, that you're no longer reliant on maybe CCTV cameras, which might be in the control of a few people or in the control of um, a public body, means that there's a much greater degree of accountability there, as well as other concerns about how the um, technology might be abused, of course, but mostly that there is a greater degree of accountability, mostly that individuals are, are complaining about police behaviour no longer have to rely on 
maybe witness evidence which might be discredited, but they have a much more apparently objective record in the form of the uh, mobile phone video. So there was two guards. The first guard who I'd spoken to, she'd said, hold his hands. So I'd, I had my hands being held just above my head like that. I was tugging and squirming. And the, the first guard I was talking to was putting her hands down my trousers, trying to get my phone. And now I, I was squirming and I was I was going mad and I was saying, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. I'm underage. You're not a man. You're, you're not allowed. And in fairness, you know, looking back on that, that's... If I had known as much as I I knew now about really what is and isn't appropriate, and not just appropriate, but legal, like, it really wasn't acceptable the way that that was done. I also asked TJ about this. Are the Gardaí entitled to search someone, including a child, in order to seize the phone because of a recording they may have made? So again, the answer would in general be no. Now, there may be some very rare situations in which um, you might have evidence of a crime and there might be a situation in which they might be entitled to um, take the phone for the purposes of preserving that evidence. But that would be a very rare situation indeed. So the general principle there would be, no, they would not in general be entitled to ask you to stop recording nor to seize your phone. Um, And in fact, um, an issue that has tended to arise Um, in other jurisdictions where this has happened, has been litigation to establish this principle. So in the United States, for example, the um, courts have recognised a First Amendment right um, to film police in scope of their duties. Anyways, I was squirming and I was trying to move away from them. And I did, I did, in fairness, kick one of them in the hip. And she said, that's it, right? We're, We're bringing you back. That's assault. So that was when they just left me, as was. And they closed the cage door and they closed the the back door of the van and they started driving away then. How did you feel when that happened? I was furious, to be honest, because, you know, I full well knew she wasn't, but nobody was allowed to do that, but especially me being underage and her a woman. As a teacher, Oscar is very clear on the rights and wrongs of an adult having contact with children. It's not just wrong, but it's... It's it's so dangerous to be doing that to a child, and especially now, you know, we we know so much more about consent and what what isn't isn't socially or not just socially acceptable, but just what isn't what's just morally wrong to do to a child. And at the time, I was just so angry, but you know, now looking back on it, it does make you that bit more angry because to feel that they are entitled and it's acceptable for them to do that to a child is just it's just so wrong. These are guards that are still most likely working. And, you know, I, I can't imagine they've changed a huge amount. But the, it's, like you said, it's not, it's not decades ago or in old kind of times. It's, it's recent. And so when you kicked the guard, was that intentional? Well, it was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't intentional, I guess, to kick her. But to get her off me, it was, yeah, I, you know, she, she was, I did have her hands down my trousers and was in my face. Yeah. That whole part was still in the van. We were sitting in the back of the van, or I was sitting in the back of the van, and she said, right, that's it. We're bringing you back to the station. That's that's assault. You're after just kicking me. Um, closed the doors and drove. And now I was kind of relieved in a sense. I was like, grand, okay, I'm going to be back in a station. There's going to be more people in the station, regardless if they believe me or not. You know, that's I'll be put somewhere and I'll be put on my own and then I can explain myself when someone comes to me. That feeling that he would be safer in the station is not actually that surprising when we look at the research. For a long time, allegations were made that police did all kinds of things to suspects in police detention, a theme we'll be focusing on more next week. A couple of things have changed this. In the late 1990s, regulations were brought in to allow for the recording of all interviews in police custody in Ireland. Within a few years, this was pretty much universal. And since 2014, you are permitted to have your solicitor in the interview with you. Now, all of this happened much earlier in England and Wales, pretty much in the mid-1980s. What very quickly emerged there were allegations that police just found other places to do things they shouldn't. The trip to the police station, taking the scenic route, became really important. It could be as simple as effectively interviewing the person on the way, getting them to say things, so that in the recorded interview, they knew exactly what to ask. Or it could be something more harmful, more intimidating and more abusive. 
and the invisibility of these interactions, not recorded, often only with the person making the accusation as a witness, makes it really hard to know if and when they are happening. We'd been driving for about, it was only about 30 seconds, really, maybe a minute, and the, the, the van stopped. And I thought, oh God, she's going to let me out now and I can, I can go home myself and this is grand. And it didn't move. And, you know, after a minute or so, like you, I could see the two of them sitting in the front. There's just a kind of a cage between myself and them on that side as well. And I'd said, what's happening? Like, where are we? Why aren't you moving? What's going on? And she'd said, uh, just, you know, she was like, kind of just shut up, stay there, just don't move. And after about five minutes of just sitting there, um, I heard voices and the two of them got outside and were talking to men. And the the door opened and the cage door opened and two male guards came and they grabbed me one by the, the scruff of the neck kind of and one behind me back and they threw me onto the bonnet of a squad car they had and the two of them were like reefing my arms up behind my back kind of you know that that military choke thing where you you pull someone's wrist up to their neck and um you know the two of them were then saying like you know you're not so hard now you don't think you're so funny now kicking a female guard blah 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 give me your phone where's your phone and they were holding my arms pulling them all the way up and you know that's that's painful and that was scary because they were really one of them was putting my his hand on the back of my head onto the the bonnet of the squad car and he's saying give me your phone give me your phone and the first time i didn't and then they did it again and i gave them my phone but um they had me like that for a few minutes when I was just sitting there. And you know, like, regardless of a woman, like, I, I was bigger than the woman at the time. And obviously it was still a dreadful thing, experience, but I was bigger than her. I, I had some sort of control and sense of, not power, but I was able to defend myself in a way in that situation. But with two big, fully grown, you know, men, it, it's different. Like, that really was scary when, when they pulled me out of the car there. Okay. I want to stop here for a minute and talk about police use of force, because this is something we don't talk about very much in Ireland. We've mentioned in previous episodes how the police are given powers that most people in society don't have. We allow police to do things we don't otherwise allow in order to protect us all from harm and to investigate crime. One of the powers the police have is to use force. This is a constitutional issue. You have a constitutional right to bodily integrity. And when the police use force, they interfere with that right. And when we say use force, we mean any touching, restraints, including handcuffs, taser, pepper spray or guns. Oscar says two fully grown guardi held him down. He was in pain and he was scared. This was a use of force. From what Oscar says, it appears that force was being used to effect an arrest. The Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act 1997 gives Gardaí the power to use force, if necessary, for an arrest. But because your constitutional rights are involved, this is not a carte blanche. The arresting Garda can only use the degree of force necessary to effect or maintain an arrest. Any more than that will be an unlawful assault. It's an issue we'll come back to, I'm sure, but we don't know how often Gardaí use force. The Garda Commissioner has, this year, begun to report the use of force to the police authority, where this involves some weapon or implement. For a number of years now, the Metropolitan Police have recorded and published all uses of force, including physical restraint. Indeed, the data they provide enables us to analyse and see trends, such as higher use of force against men, against black people, against young people, etc. We just don't have that data here. So they took your phone at that point? They took my phone, yeah, and they gave it back to the, the first guard that I was talking to. Did you ever get your phone back? I did, yeah, back in the station. So what happened was when, when we got to the station, we they put me back in the van and we drove. It was about 10 minutes back to the station and they'd taken me out and brought me in and I had to take my shoes off and my belt and sign forms and stuff. And at that point they'd said, uh, there was a man, an older kind of man at the at the station and he said, they'd explained I'd been recording them and he'd gone to tell me how it was illegal to record other people without their consent. I, I actually can't remember, but he was telling me, you're not allowed to do that, that's another offence, so you must delete that video. 
um, from your phone now or else that'll be a second thing along with the assault. So I deleted the video, given my phone, given my shoes, uh, my belt, and then was putting one of the, the cells there. It was about maybe 9, 10 p.m. I was in the room and I was put there on my own um, and I was there for hours, like hours and hours just dragging and I was sitting there absolutely nervous. I was so scared because obviously I'd never been, you know, arrested and they hadn't told me what was going to happen and all that, all that I knew was that I'd, I'd not only assaulted a guard but I'd been recording her without her permission which was illegal. Ursula talked us through how Gardaí must treat young people in Garda stations. The Children Act has very specific requirements with regard to how young people are treated and how Gardaí treat young people in Garda stations. So specifically under the Act, Gardaí are required to act with respect for the personal rights of children and their dignity, um, for their vulnerability owing to their age and, and level of maturity and any special needs they might have. And that includes requirements, for example, that they receive explanations of the charge in language they understand. They're entitled to have a parent or guardian present during questioning and they're entitled to be held separately. And I think these are important, explicit safeguards that are in place in Irish law, which reflect the elements I talked about earlier about children's vulnerability and, and how they might sometimes look to short circuit those safeguards to to get out of trouble. Um, so we need we need to make sure that that there is universal application of those requirements and standards so that the rights of young people are protected and, and the efficacy of the policing process is is also protected. So I think it's important to reflect that the law already uh, responds to children's particular circumstances and vulnerability and places very particular requirements on Gardaí uh, but especially in, in Garda stations and during, during Garda questioning. But again, the sense of time for a young person requires us to think just differently about how all these situations are managed. Um, what might seem like a, a reasonable period of time to an adult will seem like an eternity for a child. I had just been sitting there in the cell. They told me just to wait and they'll call someone. So after... I, I don't know how long it was, there's no clock in there, but after after what felt like maybe an hour, hour and a half, I'd pressed the buzzer and uh, a different man I hadn't met came and he just said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, what's what's happening? What time is someone coming for me? And he said, um, we're going to call one of your parents because I'd given my dad's phone number when I was brought back and he said, we're, we've called your dad, he still hasn't come to get you yet. Um, you'll know when he comes to get you. And I said, Grand, so I sat back down and there's like a blue mat in the room. And I was just sitting down on the blue mat and um, like time was just passing and passing. I was just sitting there nervous. And you know, when your time feels so much slower when you're scared and your heart's beating. And um, I'd, after a while, it, it could have been another hour or so, I went and pressed the buzzer again. The same man came in, he said, what's wrong? And I just said, is, is still nobody come for me? Like what's what's happening? Like, you know, just looking for them to say, oh, someone will be here in this amount of time, or I don't know, here's a glass of water or something. And he just said, listen, that, that buzz is for emergencies. So if you feel like you're going to die, press that buzzer, otherwise sit back down. And I sat back down and then I, I was still sitting there, nothing, nobody had happened. I could hear people talking outside and coming and going. And after a while, I just went up to the wall and I was just put my finger on the buzzer and just wouldn't let go and wouldn't let go. And I had it just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. And nobody had come for me. Um, and after maybe doing that for about five minutes, I just said, oh, this is pointless. Just lay down on the thing and just looked up at the ceiling. And then after another little while, the the door had opened and uh, one of the, the guy that was at the station to meet me the when I first got there, the older man, he said, oh, your dad's here to come and bring you home. And I remember getting out and my dad looked furious at me and I was so scared, but I looked at the clock and the clock had said it was nearly five o'clock. It was like 20 to five in the morning. And um, the man who was great, like took all my details, he had explained, you know, I was I was drunk and reckless and I'd kicked a guard and I was being abusive. And um, my dad was furious at me because like that wouldn't have been character for me to to have been drunk and falling over and screaming at guards and kicking them and stuff, which is what it was made out to be. Um, 
But when we left... Can, can I ask a few questions about yeah, that? Yeah, of course. So, there was no effort to take a statement from you or anything? No, I, I didn't have a statement taken. And did did anyone talk to you about your rights to a solicitor? No. No. Okay. So you were in the station for five or six hours. Yeah. And nothing really happened. Not even just nothing happened. Like I wasn't even told what what the process was going to be. And that's what was the kind of the scariest part because, you know, I didn't, I know it sounds stupid looking back on it now, but I didn't know if I was really going to be taken and sent to prison or I, I know obviously I, I wouldn't go to prison for a substantial amount of time, but I, I didn't, I just had no idea what was going to happen to me. As soon as we left, I said, why did you take so long to come? I was terrified. And he said, what did you mean? What time? And he'd taken out his phone to show me because I'd, I'd said they called you hours and hours ago. And he'd taken out his phone to show me. He had two missed calls from them because um, he was asleep and they were at about four o'clock in the morning, the missed calls, just after four o'clock. So I'd just been left sitting there the whole time. So they left a child sitting there until 4 a.m. For hours, yeah. Okay. The requirement is that the Gardaí contact, first of all, advise young people of their right to have, have that contact made. And, and, and contact the parent or guardian. And there is an expectation that, that would be uh, done immediately. Children in Garda stations are in incredibly vulnerable position. And uh, we know from research and from, from the experiences of young people that they, their judgment uh, can, is, 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 poss- is likely to be poor in, in that environment. They're likely to take decisions that are short term in nature, for example, in compromising their own rights or positions to get out of the Garda station. And so it's absolutely vital that there is immediate action taken to ensure that the necessary independent supports are in place for those young people in Garda stations, both in terms of their parent or guardian. And of course, there'll be circumstances where they may be difficult to find. They may not be available for various reasons. Um, and in, in which case there is provision for an alternative adult to be present. Um, so that's recognised too. And then an equally um, access to their solicitor. Uh, neither of those uh, should be compromised and, and they should be a, an immediate priority um, to ensure young people are, are properly supported um, when they're in guard custody. It's clear from Oscar's retelling that even the lack of action by Gardaí was felt very powerfully. And the not knowing what was happening created a real sense of anxiety and uncertainty. And again, I think if you were to ask the, the Gardaí involved, they may well say, yeah, we, we, we checked in every hour or, or, or periodically and, and yes, advised uh, him what was to happen. But I, I think that we overestimate all the time our, our perception of uh, what, what we think young people are experiencing. I've heard that a lot from professionals over the years, whether it's court or, or elsewhere. They know how it works. They don't need this explained to them. And actually, all of the evidence is they don't know how it works. And we don't communicate effectively with young people in these situations. They don't know what their rights are. They don't know what the consequence are of waiving their own rights, um, of delaying or choosing not to to have a parent present or a solicitor present. And um, and we see we're seeing research in the United States about the implications of that for what ultimately happens to them in the criminal justice system. So these are not abstract one off or artificial uh, sorts of issues. These are real issues for, for young people's lives in both in, in the moment of their experience in, the, in Garda custody and in the long term way in which they interact with the criminal justice system and, and, and policing more specifically. Getting out of the station was not the end of this ordeal for Oscar. Quite immediately, he had to face his parents. They like they really didn't believe me in the slightest. Um they were furious at me. He was furious. He was woken up, you know, at 5am and to come and get me as, and you know, in fairness, when, when you have a 15 year old and then you have four Gardaí telling them two different things and the Gardaí are all saying the same thing. It, it, like, even if I was a parent, I'd, I'd believe the guards, but he'd been told that I was drunk. I was getting sick. I was kicked out for that. And then 
I was screaming at the guard, I kicked her and, you know, it, it, it obviously wasn't anywhere near what had actually happened. And even when I said, this is what happened, you know, I, she offered me a lift home and then all of a sudden I was arrested. He, he was telling me that's ridiculous. That's the most stupid thing. Um, so yeah, he really was furious at me. And then the prospect of being charged with this range of offences loomed over Oscar. I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I hadn't even been told, you know, this is the process for things. Usually this will happen. So I was I was really nervous for a while. Um, and then I'd kind of, a month had passed or so and I'd heard nothing. And I kind of thought, oh, maybe maybe that was just it. And then I came home from school one of the days. And when I got in the door, my mum had said, you have a meeting down um, at Braegarda Station, your local station, and with the JLO officer. JLO is the Juvenile Liaison Officer. The Gardaí run what is called the Juvenile Diversion Programme, the aim of which is to keep people out of the criminal justice system if we can. That's an important aim because once you're in that system, it can be very hard to get out. So this programme is administered in every area by the JLO and they can give you a caution instead of charging you. There are additional things that can be done. They can put you under the supervision of a JLO and they can, in some circumstances, arrange a conference where you meet the victim of your crime to hear about the impact it had on them and possibly develop some kind of plan. Not everyone is eligible and the seriousness of the offence and someone's offending history are taken into account in making that decision. The current scheme builds on one the Guardi have run since the 1960s, often to great praise. It's, it's hugely successful. It's, a, it's a, an exemplar internationally of how to promote positive uh, diversion away from offending and from the, uh, from the courts by young people uh, in a supportive but um, rigorous manner. But in the main, um, this is a really important programme. We have specially trained members of Angardi Shikana providing uh, specific child-appropriate interventions with young people and, and building that relationship, which is really crucial. So we went down and uh, I have to say the woman, it was a woman guard and she was so lovely. She was really, really kind. Um, came in, she offered me tea. Um, it was me and my mum and she'd, she'd explained this is the process for things. This is what a JLO is. Um, you know, I'll be someone that's going to keep in touch with you and we're going to look over things. And she had then asked me for a statement of what had happened that night. Um, and then she took that, read that, and she kind of compared it with what she was given, which was obviously very different. Which, and I remembered the statement that the guards from the night had given was that I had been kicked out and I was screaming at the guards as soon as I got kicked out and I'd walked over and kicked her. Um, and that's that's the way it had been made out that happened. But while I was at my JLO meeting, she had said, now we have to discuss that the guard from that night is looking to press for assault charges. I was so scared at that point, my heart was gone. And I, I knew, you know, there was no way that I'd be letting that happen. And she said, essentially, you can either accept that you assaulted the guards and that you're in the wrong, give a written apology and, you know, go and say sorry, or you can let this go to court. And, you know, my mom was saying, OK, just, you know, give it the written apology. Like, it's fine. You know, if you have to take a, a JLO for um, an assault charge, that's that's fine. One of the primary conditions for being eligible for the scheme is that you accept responsibility for your behaviour. Research has shown in many countries with similar schemes that young people often accept such cautions for something they didn't necessarily do because of pressure not to go to court. The place we were, it was it was a busy nightclub and it was a well-built up area. I knew full well there had to be some sort of camera or something like that somewhere or there was witnesses or, you know, I knew plenty of people at the time that were there. And I said, absolutely not. You know, I'm I'm not going to admit to something that I didn't do. I'm not going to write a statement apologising when I'd been treated so horribly. Like something that had really scared me for a long time afterwards. Like that, I'd, I'd, I'd really, like I'd not been sleeping for weeks and weeks properly just with the nerves of, you know, am I never going to be able to go to America or Australia again kind of thing. Because I, I really had no idea what was going to happen to me. And I'd said to the JLO officer, there's absolutely no way that I'm doing this. And she said, well, 
we really would advise because if you if you don't accept this charge and you don't you know put it in writing that you are at fault then this will go to court and it'll be on your permanent record forever and it could affect jobs blah 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 but i just knew i knew full well there were there definitely had to be cameras somewhere there had to be something that that would you know prove that this wasn't what it was because the two stories were so different that it, it, you know if there was any kind of footage or any anything to back me up it, it would have just completely disproved what uh, the guard on the night was saying so i said that to her and she said that's fine if that's my choice and she'll go back and say that to the other guard station and she did and that was fine and um i heard nothing from it anyways for i'd say about another three weeks or so then at that point, I'd gotten a call or my mum had gotten a call from the jail officer saying to come back down for a meeting. And she had explained to me then that the officer, the guard from in question from the first night had decided then not to press the assault charges and would like a written apology anyways for my behaviour on the night. But that there was going to be no, um, no charges as such or no actual jail given to me, which you know, was such a relief at the time because I people in school have been asking and everyone in school have been saying, you know, you're never going to be allowed to go abroad. You're not going to get a job with the JLO, all, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that freaks you out as a 15-year-old. And it was even to the point of like, you know, I had my junior cert coming up and I was like, what is the point in me even doing this thing? Because if I can't get a good job when I'm older or if I can't go abroad, you know, what's the point of me even bothering in school? And that sounds, it does sound silly, like at this age saying that, but you know, when you're you're young and you're naive to these things, nobody had explained to me, this is the process for a JLO. This is the process for what will happen on a criminal charge. It won't stay with you forever. The psychological impact that being isolated and detained can have on young people cannot be understated. A tragic case in England saw two 17 year olds take their own lives after being arrested and then released without parents being informed. That's how terrified they were of the impact of an arrest. Their families have successfully challenged the law so that all who are under 18 must have a parent or guardian contacted. It's so important that their perspective is considered when they are caught up in processes they don't understand and can easily be overwhelmed by. This happens across the board in, in dealing with, with children and with those who are who are vulnerable, um, where we, particularly those those in authority, are, are used to um, the the day-to-day operation of, of the job, whether that's in policing or elsewhere. And we forget that those we encounter from time to time have no idea and, and, are, and can, and whether it's court or whether it's in the Garda station, for instance, be absolutely terrified about the prospect of what might happen. And we somehow normalise the interaction by forgetting and omitting to take account of and to listen to people that are in those really vulnerable situations. And interestingly, once Oscar stood his ground, nothing happened. No charge, no caution. And essentially that was the end of it. That was, you know, she'd, I, I refused to write the written apology. In my eyes, I had nothing to apologise for. Obviously, looking back on it now, Dealing with the situation slightly more calmly and not kicking the guards would have been a wise thing to do. But, you know, it's so hard to say what you should and shouldn't do when you're in a situation and you're 15 and all of this is happening to you. Like, it's it really is mad kind of looking back on it. It doesn't feel like it was me. I had I was given no JLO in the end. I never saw the JLO officer again. No further dealings with anything to do with that. This wasn't Oscar's last interaction with the Gardaí. I had one other encounter two years later. This time it was completely different. I was completely at fault. It was all me that had, you know, I was out on a night out and I had just gotten far too drunk, like far, far too drunk. And I really, I couldn't speak properly. I couldn't walk properly. And um, the guards had brought me back to the station, uh, a different station this time, a nearby one. And... um, they were so, so, so lovely. I like I can't stress enough how kind they were. And obviously the that was the only other experience I had with the guards and I was so scared when, you know, I was like, oh God, not this whole thing again. 
but they were so kind. They brought me back to the station, they put me on a chair and someone sat beside me the whole time on a bench. They put a blanket around me, you know, they had their chocolate bars and they had tea and they were getting me to drink water and they were sitting chatting to me. They called my mum and it explained and um, she came, brought me home and everything. And they even called her the next day, the next evening, when the same guard was on working. And they just said, you know, is he all right, blah, blah, blah. So I'd, I had gone in that time to say thank you the next day, but that was obviously a real juxtaposition to the first time. But they, that time they were just brilliant. They were so, so kind. You know, even I really appreciated getting that call. Well, my mom got the call the next day, just saying, is he all right? I hope he's feeling fine. Like, you know, best luck with everything. It just, you know, little things like that really just show you that some people do really care. I think it's clear listening to Oscar that he's not praising them because he didn't get charged, but because he was dealt with compassionately. But Ursula tells us that one positive interaction will not undo the power of negative experiences. Research tells us that these individual interactions have intergenerational impacts. And I suppose, ironically, young people uh, in their interaction with with Gardaí, where that's a positive interaction, they don't tend to extend that um, relationship more broadly or that that, um, attitude, the positive attitude they experience from a positive intervention doesn't tend to extend more generally to to the Gardaí as a whole, uh, whereas the negative uh, does have that impact. And, And I think it just highlights the importance of each individual interaction, the responsibility on each individual member of Angarthi Shikana when they're interacting with young people, that that is, is empathetic and mutually respectful and also is one that's fair. Ultimately, young people deserve and want fairness. And that goes a long way to their the efficacy of, of the policing, as well as the relationship between, between the young people and, and the Gardaí. So how does all of this leave you feeling about the guards? Somewhat, somewhat similar to how I have always felt about the guards and I think how most young people, particularly in working class areas, feel about the guards. And that is, you know, I, I'm very careful not to say anything, anyone is anything. And I know there are plenty of really, really good guards. I have a cousin who's a guard and she's absolutely brilliant at her job. You know, she works in community policing and she's just super, she's a lovely person. And I know there's loads of other great guards out there that go into be guards to make a great difference in people's lives. Like, you know, that night, that the second night that I was talking about there. But I, I still believe that a lot of people that go to be guards go purely because they want to be this authoritarian figure and have power over other people and just just use that power and it's not that I'd you know I'd I wouldn't judge anyone for being a guard and if I met a guard I'd be nothing but lovely and you know I'd even with the kids in school I'm always saying you know the guards are not bad people they're great people they're doing great things in the community they do great work but I would always be wary of a guard and I would always be very careful now looking back on my experiences and my friends' experiences and the kids in school's experiences, I'd be very careful how I interact with the guards because I would have very little trust for them as a group of people. It's kind of sad to hear, but Oscar sees these sentiments among the primary school children he teaches now. It seems to be something that's getting worse because it's something I'm hearing more, but it's it's not even as if they're they're being dreadful to the kids it's the kind of stuff of when they're out and about saying you know what are you doing here why are you staying here move on go somewhere else like in their own estate kind of thing not not as if they're standing outside shops um you know what are what are you up to what are you all doing you know do you have anything on you you shouldn't have and these are these are primary school kids these are you know 9 10 11 12 um just that kind of going in and belittling them and just showing them who's boss kind of thing Little comments like that, you know, just making them feel as if they're kind of below the guards and they're doing something wrong just for being out and about and being with their friends. In a friend of mine's school in the same area, they're, um, they do a drama thing with all of the senior years in their school of street law, just okay. to get the children well informed of what their rights as a child are, what if they get into a situation with the guards, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, but 
to be able to know what they're entitled to, you know, they're entitled to their rights. You know, they can't be searched. Um, and it's sad that that's the case. It's obviously important, but it's sad that there's the need for for eight and nine year olds to have to know their rights if a guard stops them and is is not just, you know, not abusing them like per se, but just giving them cheek and just not make it, making them feel a bit worthless that it's sad that we have to go and now teach kids to be careful around the cards when they should be someone they can go to for support or someone to trust or someone for help, you know? Oscar told us about a night that didn't result in a charge or even a caution. His encounter will barely register in any statistics or data about policing. But it had a deep effect on him. You know, I'm just wary of the guards. And obviously I know there are so many brilliant guards who do so much great work every day. And I could be being pessimistic about it just based on my own experiences and the experiences around me. And I'm sure in some areas, the guards are absolutely brilliant. But you know, your experience with the guards shouldn't be based on your area or your background. The guards should just be people in the community that you can go to if you need them. In this episode, we've touched on a range of big themes in policing. Guard of powers, the use of force. But the most important from today is how Gardaí engage with children and why it is so important that they are treated appropriately, with respect and dignity, and with the recognition of how their thoughts and behaviours may differ from those of adults. When Oscar first got in touch, he said he was motivated by what he was hearing from the kids in his class about their interactions with Gardaí. It's a tough ask for Gardaí to say that if you get it wrong even once, it can have lasting consequences. And a recurring theme in this series is that people do see Gardaí doing great work every day. But we are entitled to ask for those standards to be maintained all the time, especially how stark the consequences can be for children. I thank my producers Tony Groves and Brian from Grooves Ahead for their continued work. I thank Professor Kilkelly and Dr. McIntyre for their contributions. And a big thanks to Oscar for getting in touch and sharing his experience of being policed in Ireland. Next week, we'll be speaking to Oscar Brahanuk, who was convicted in the 1980s for the Salons mail train robbery and later had that conviction overturned due to problems with the confession. This work is entirely listener funded, meaning you won't hear any ads. So please subscribe on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack so we can keep making this stuff and follow us on Twitter at Policed Podcast.